in order for the left to win, we need money. And if you want to have a lot of money, you need somebody who knows how to take care of it. And we see all the time organizations that crumble or get taken down by bad financial practices or bad habits or bad forms being filed. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Howie Stanger, runs a full-service political operations and accounting company called Pocketbook Strategies. They assist progressive political organizations and campaigns to refine their operational strategies to ensure their strategic success. Howie previously ran operations for the Sunrise Movement and worked for a compliance firm. I really enjoyed hearing his story, how he's building a firm, and how he sees the political ecosystem from an operations vantage point. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Howie at Pocketbook Strategies. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Howie, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Howie Stanger. I live in Los Angeles. My pronouns are he or they. I was born and raised in LA. I moved to the East Coast and lived there for about 10 years. Did a stint in Boston, New York, and a very small stint in Washington, D.C. during the pandemic and moved back to L.A., 2020. I started doing political kind of operations work, going to a Jewish summer camp and ended up moving to New York to run the operations of the summer camp network and learned how to do bookkeeping and payroll and healthcare. And while I was there, yeah, I had a couple of friends who who started a, a group called If Not Now, and I got involved with If Not Now in New York and started to do organize and do actions and you know get involved in the broader anti-incubation movement ecosystem. And as If Not Now was growing, realized that there was not going to be any money for operations work or to operations staffer. And so I started to help out with a friend of mine who was, who was doing that as a volunteer. And through there, I met uh, two people who were part of the Sunrise co-founding group, Evan and Sarah. And I started to give some time every now and then with Sunrise financial stuff. 
and ended up going to work there as the CLO for the first like two and a half years of Sunrise's uh, existence. And I switched over to a compliance firm because I wanted to learn how to do things like not in the important and urgent quadrant of the Eisenhower box to learn a little bit more with a little bit less pressure and worked there for two and two and a half years and started Pocketbook in March 2022. And I've been doing that ever since. I like how political careers develop and go down different directions depending on where they start often. I mean, who would think that helping out at a camp network would necessarily lead to dealing with operations for a social movement? Yeah, not me. One of the things that's been funny is as I have, you know, traveled the network in the past couple of years, like people have started asking me like, oh, you know, what do your parents do and, and things like that. And, and I give them the answer that my mom is like a daily money manager and my dad worked at ADP for 35 years. Oh my God, you've converged on your parents. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so ADP for people who don't know is they do payroll stuff. Yeah. They're a very large payroll company that is publicly traded. Uh, and so the Apple did not fall too far from the tree somehow. It either, it seems like it either doesn't or it goes, rolls way off and it might depend on the slope. Yes, correct. Correct. So, yeah, did, so, so does that mean you liked your parents a lot? I do like my parents. <laughs> yes, I do like my parents. Now you're on the record. Good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you're giving your quick summary of your biography, there are a couple questions came to mind. I, along the way, have interviewed founders, both if not now, and of Sunrise Movement. Uh, Varshini, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Sarah Brimmer Schley was her name. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I am curious about your perspective on both of those. They are related enterprises. There's yes information about how to do a social movement, how to do direct action that moves back and forth between them and and other groups. Tell me about working for first one and then the other, and what you learned about how a social movement operates behind the scenes, because I bet you a lot of people don't know that anyone trying to make a social movement happen might need bookkeeping, might need operations, might need to have staff or professionals involved or to build that over time. Tell me about that from, from inside. Yeah, that's a great question. The, the relationship between If Not Now and Sunrise, just for background, is characterized by uh, a process that's called a front-loading process, which is that there's a group of people who get together and they essentially make a plan for how they want to create movement on their issue. That process is kind of guided by this idea of, of a cycle of momentum is what it's called. And there's a, an organization called Momentum that incubates social movements by basically training the founders and then helping them kind of take the momentum theory and apply it to, to their issue. 
your observation that people who are social movement curious, let's say, don't automatically think that they would need operations or financial support or accounting or HR or payroll or whatever. I think operations is kind of a big bucket sometimes. So you could throw whatever you want under there or political compliance. Sometimes tech. Yeah. Tech as well. Yeah, exactly. In my experience, it hasn't, it's usually not the, it's not the first priority or the second priority of like developing a social movement. These people tend to be very political and very focused on policy or political goals and less about the nitty gritty. Correct. One of one of the the axioms or I would say value sentences maybe is a better word for it that I try to have, have set up for, for Pocketbook and the people, all the people that work there, which is there's four of us now, is that strategy comes before structure and the strategy informs structure. And so I think in this case, as an operations person, I think it would be easy to to take my what I just said of like operations and finances is not the first priority when you're developing a social movement as a an insult or a dig against the people who develop them. And it's it is more important to to understand what what's your goal and how are you trying to achieve that? And is it about gaining state power or is it about more stop signs in your neighborhood? And I think you can you can decide from once you once you've zeroed in on what you're trying to do, then you can set up structure to to facilitate that. I also interviewed someone from Momentum, the organization, Maria Cabello. Mafe. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious how much, if there is a entity, as I've discussed with her and other people, that is helping kind of almost franchise these social movements, do they have operations? How much did you interact with them as kind of a parent company or something to to help him with the setup. What what was that like? I'm actually the board treasurer of Momentum, the organization now. So I'm I've become more more familiar over the past year with the way that it operates and the yeah and and all of its ins and outs. In the case of both Sunrise and If Not Now, I came into the picture after the front loading process was complete. So I have never gone through that level of, of planning. My understanding of it from my friends and, and colleagues and as well as with being involved in the organization in different ways is that there, there's a kind of a set curriculum of topics that you want to run through to have outcomes basically on what are your political goals versus how are you going to get that done? How many people do you need to get that done? What does it look like to create cycles of momentum and what kind of trigger events are you trying to create? And what's the people power that's it's going to take to basically move the needle on your issue? I remember when I first was like getting onboarded into Sunrise, the one thing that I was really struck by was at that time when they were making the plan, which was probably from 2014 to 2017, early 2017, there were all these studies, you know, data that was coming out that was like 80% of Americans are concerned about climate change, which is a, essentially a super majority compared to other issues where people express concern. 
in this country. And there was no political movement or even discussion about the issue, really. And so the problem that that they were trying to solve for was how do we create climate change as like a wedge within the electoral political system. And so that was, then the question was like, how do we, how do we move a significant portion of the, that 80% into action on the issue? So tell me about Sunrise as an organization when you joined it. What did it look like? What were the operations like? And then what were you part of changing as it grew and needed to scale the operations component? When I came on, there were eight co-founders. There were like 10 people involved. Maybe I was number 10 or 11. And this was December, 2017. At that point, when I came on, I was the second person who was on payroll. Everybody else like had a job or was like doing consulting gigs or was just full-time volunteering. So when I came on, we were in QuickBooks payroll, which in my opinion is not a great payroll system to allow for and encourage a scaling of a social movement. So that's kind of a picture of the, the operations in the beginning. We had two organizations, a 501c3 and a 501c4. One of my first big projects when I came on was to figure out what is the vehicle that we will need to participate in elections in the primary and the general election of 2018. At my previous job, I had gotten familiarity with 501c3s. And so I was learning 501c4s and PACs essentially in this first year. And we set up a PAC in April 2018 called Sunrise PAC. And I learned about the difference between federal, state, and local political election compliance and how messy that is. And we participated in primary elections in five states on both sides of the firewall, independent expenditures and coordinated side. Then we had the Pelosi sit-in in November and December. There was a follow-up Pelosi sit-in as well. Um, in December of 2018. And, and from there, basically, it was a rocket ship. And we were all kind of flying this rocket ship, basically. And does that mean adding paid staff? Does that mean adding contractors? Does that mean accepting money from lots of different sources? What came to you? All of it. At that point, I was in charge of the operations of the C3, the C4, and the PAC the finances of the C3, the C4, and the PAC, the HR and payroll components of employing people, the political compliance, then interfaced with the fundraising team, obviously, because anything that had to do with money was, was coming through. That's kind of trial by fire, isn't it? Absolutely. I ran a company that grew pretty fast for a while. How big did Sunrise get in number of people that worked for it? So in 2017, there were two people on like full-time payroll. There were some people getting like 1099s every now and then, but there were two. And between the C3 and the C4, there was a budget of about $850,000. And 
when I left in 2020, there was, I think, 120 people on payroll. The last budget that I, that I wrote was a $15 million budget between three organizations. What I know about startups, and that's from talking to other people and, and a little experience on my own, is that there's growing pains. Nobody gets from 2 to 10 to 15 to 20 and on up without having to change systems, without having to change processes, without having to learn. Definitely. Tell me some of the things that were challenges. Some of the challenges for me personally, in reflection, I think my main challenge was understanding enough about the types of systems that we were employing to run the organizations to be able to allow them to scale at the level that was required. So an example is what I said before, the QuickBooks payroll system is not good if you want to have over five people on payroll, I think. We ran that on up to a large number. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it didn't help scale. So we switched to, like I said, I had, you know, my dad worked at ADP for 35 years. I called him and I was like, I, I really am having difficulties here. And so we switched to ADP. Just as a matter of digging into like this, what sort of things, because there, there are going to be other people that are political entrepreneurs that are like, uh, I'm really pissed off with my payroll system. What distinguishes one that's ready for scaling from one that doesn't? This is true of a lot of financial and operational software at this point, the ability to have people do their own like onboarding work basically through the system. So I think that at that point in 2016, I don't think ADP or QuickBooks payroll had the ability for me to send an invite to a new employee and say, here, great, here, put all your stuff in. It was, it was a very manual face-to-face process. So I think be, being able to like offboard some of the personal details. Because a lot of times so you just approach a new employee, you hand them a W-9 or the equivalent piece of paper. They write it, someone rekeys it into the system, which is obviously like what's happening to us still in doctor's offices, but ought not be. Yeah. 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 So I would say that that was one, like I think having software that allows for that type of putting some of the work onto other people. Another thing I think is I didn't have a good understanding of the difference between volume, scale, and complexity, I think is one of the, one of the ways that I, I, I think about my work now and the work that we do at Pocketbook is helping organizations like manage those three things. An easy example is, is thinking about like credit cards. So volume would be like how many credit card transactions do you have? Scale would be how many credit cards do you have? Like how many employees have credit cards? And complexity would be how many credit card systems do you have, right? Do you have credit cards for one organization? Do you have credit cards for two organizations? Do you have credit cards for three? Or do you have two different credit card credit cards? Like do you have an Amex and a, v- and a Visa? So that was something that I didn't do very well, I would say. <laughs> but there is a certain type of person and I think you're probably one of them, quite obviously, that finds that at least interesting enough to tackle it, to, to maintain it in your head, to try to improve it alongside lots of other elements of the internal part of scaling. 
that are necessary for all the other people to do what they need to do to be compensated for it, to have systems that, that make an enterprise work? Yes. It was my job to support people's ambitions for what they wanted politics to look like. And the mark that they wanted to make, whether it was for themselves, their family, their friends, their community, I found something that I could hold on to as far as the creativity of this work being something that was interesting to me and something that would allow me to support people with the ambition, the political communications or campaign or organizing ambitions that I just found myself in community with. I found the creativity part of it interesting enough to like sink my teeth in and, and then kind of work through it in my brain as like a systems thinking problem, which I enjoyed. I have a sociology and a history degree. So the fact that there are a lot of people that refer to me as their accountant is, it makes me smile, makes me laugh, but it's true at this point. When I started to build Pocketbook, I was looking for examples of, like I do payroll and I also do accounting and I also help people through audits and also set up payroll, you know, health insurance for people. I kind of felt like it was an amalgamation of a lot of things and the closest example of like a niche or a business industry that I found was like accounting firms. So now I kind of run an accounting firm and, and I throw operations in there because I think it's helpful. To it makes me think of two previous guests on my podcast. One was Laura DeLucia, who worked for me in the early days of NGP software and then went on to do operations for Obama and tech firms. And, and she's, I think she's at the DNC now, but she did stuff for Biden. She's done stuff in the White House. She found a career as an operations person at lots of different types of places. And then Anne-Marie Habershaw, who did it at the DCCC, who did it at the DNC, who did it for the Obama-Biden reelect, and at Andrew Bleeker's firm. Like there are people, when, when you have that set of skills in the political space and, you, and you're a responsible person, that's a career track. Yes, it is, which I did not know that that's what I was going to be doing, <laughs> I'll say. The episode that you did with, with Anne-Marie was very interesting to me because one of the things that was really hard for me when I was at Sunrise was that I felt like I, I didn't know where to find like mentors. The reason why I learned how to do political compliance was because nobody told me that the industry of political compliance firms existed. Yeah, there's a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. And and so I just kind of did it myself. And then I went and worked at one and, you know, now I kind of run one a little bit. It is a, a career. It's definitely a, a very strong niche. Like I've found as as I've run Pocketbook, I knew that there were a lot of political organizations on the left broadly. I think that's the organization niche that we serve. I didn't know particularly what we what we do what or what we've grown to kind of do more specifically is multi-entity organizations. And I 
I thought that there would be a limit on how many multi-entity organizations there are. <laughs> there are not. I... We are blessed or cursed with a huge variety of what you're calling multi-entity operations. And, and it's just, it's the tax code that's structuring it that way. And maybe a few other things. Tell me a little bit about why did you leave Sunrise and it was at Next Level that you worked, right? What is Next Level yes. and, and what was that experience like? Next Level Partners is a political compliance firm that does mostly federal PACs campaigns. Who owns that? Jennifer May is her name. I left Sunrise because I felt like I had gotten to the edge of what I knew and what I could contribute and how creative I could be there. And I, and I wanted to go somewhere where I had somebody else that I could look to for some answers on how to run different types of, of organizations, how to run. I, I was really curious to learn more about how the FEC works and how PACs and specifically how campaigns work from like the operations perspective. So when I went to Next Level and I worked on a Senate campaign in Tennessee. And then I was the lead for the operations and the compliance on Summer Lee race and Jessica Cisneros race in the Justice Democrats extended universe, as my friend likes to call it. And I worked there and, and learned a lot, was learning how to do all, all these things from a totally different perspective of being like not in-house. At what point were you thinking, I want to start my own thing? Was that before you even worked at Next Level or when, when did that start to happen? That I knew that I wanted to leave Next Level towards the end of my, my tenure there because I felt like I was... I was leaning more towards wanting to do work with nonprofits and, and businesses. And that's a political compliance firm, which doesn't really do that. They do PACs and, and campaigns. I had brought in work that was connected to me. And so I knew that when I left, I would continue to work with those people. And so I just kind of did that. And, and then it turned into this thing where people kept emailing me or calling me. And I knew that when I left Next Level that I either could do the thing where I just kind of set up a, a business that was like Howie Stanger Consulting, something like that, or I could give it a name with the idea that maybe it becomes something that's not just about me, my skills, and my personality. And I gave it a name because I wanted to, I think my experience, my previous experience <laughs> uh, had gifted me with the knowledge that it scaling might happen at some point and it did when you started it did you start with intuit payroll absolutely not an interesting thing about the the business being most com closely compared to a, like an accounting firm is that i now have all these accounts you know with payroll companies and software companies and and banks and they have specific partnership you know channels basically for accounting firms some of them give free payroll accounts to the accountant so i have a free payroll account with gusto is the <laughs> one of choice at the moment so tell me a little bit about what it took to incorporate if you did i assume to get the systems your own operations going so by the time that i started pocketbook what i realized was that Manually doing federal or state paperwork by myself 
is not smart. And that's not because I don't know how to do it, but more because there are people who you can just pay to rinse and repeat. The whole business is just file forms for you. And so I talked to a couple couple lawyers, family friends, people who started businesses. I set up an LLC. I made it an S-Corp, I think, pretty quickly and set up in California where I live and set up a bookkeeping system and got a credit card and got a bank account. One of the lessons that I've taken from this whole thing is that the, the base of operations of any entity, if you want to be flexible and be able to scale or change purpose or whatever, you have to, the, the base has to be strong. So I knew that I would need a bank where I could talk to a banker. So I did that. And from there, I just kept doing the work that I was doing at next level. So I just kind of like, there wasn't a, there wasn't really a break. So what's your client base look like now? What, what does your staff look like now? What's the state of the business? The state of the business is good, thankfully. Sounds like the state of the union right there. You're ready for presidency. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, State of the business is good. I was by myself for about a year and realized I'm totally self-taught on all this stuff. As most people are, I find you can't get a degree in payroll. You can't get a degree in political compliance. But you could you could certainly get a, a a lot of degrees that are relevant to operations of an enterprise. But a lot of times, a general education, a liberal arts education, is a foundation for figuring out anything, not just being specifically trained in some operations or technology at the time that treated in a brittle fashion wouldn't fit a if not now or or a congressional campaign or any of the things that you're dealing with. Yeah. What ended up happening was that I kind of realized that I was spending a lot of time doing stuff that probably somebody else was better at. And that was paying bills, running payroll, doing multi-entity accounting. And so I, I hired somebody named Nancy, who is now the senior accountant at Pocketbook about a year in. She used to work at Tides. I was looking for somebody that had an understanding of scale that I didn't have. And so she had that and she's been incredible. So that was about a year in. And then six months later, so September of 2023, hired two more people. Sade used to work at the American Economic Liberties. I'm, I'm familiar with her singing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And Natalie, who used to work at Justice Democrats. And so we have about somewhere between the the issue with the the organizations that we work with as far as people ask me a lot, they're like, how many clients do you have? And it's kind of confusing because we I look at it through the lens of how many EINs are we responsible for, which is somewhere between like 55 and 65 but we have probably somewhere between like 25 and 40 actually organizations. Because just like Sunrise, sometimes they have two or three or four entities. Most of them do have two or three entities. And so we're I'm probably going to have to hire another person or two in the coming nine months to prepare for the presidential election. Where do you think in general a startup in the progressive ecosystem, whether it's 
from campaign to new organization or where do you think they go for operations advice normally? What I've seen is there's a couple law firms, you know, Sandler and Reef, Perkins Coie, Mark Elias, people like that who've who understand the political entities, who've done it over and over, who provide sort of that, okay, if you have a strategy, we have the right entity structure, maybe. What is the received wisdom that's available to people before you came on the scene and maybe currently? Yeah. So law firms are usually people's first or second call. The ones you mentioned for sure, Trista Ross as well is a, is a big one. Then there's like CPA firms, I would say. CPA firms usually get brought in when you've reached a level of, of money where you need additional or independent oversight. I wouldn't say they're like the first call or the second call, really. There are a lot of compliance firms that we've, you know, we talk about the, the compliance industry a little bit. I think a lot of compliance firms that run are connected to the political world fall into nonprofit accounting on accident because they have people who run organizations and they ask them and then they're like, sure, it's, we're just, you're keeping, you're still keeping track of money. It's just that the IRS and the FEC are completely separate systems, unfortunately. In the past couple of years, there have been more and more like operations firms that have started popping up or people people who specifically help with fiscal sponsorship spin out as one example, or people who specifically help with converting entities from nonprofits into political entities. I don't know of another firm that specializes to the degree that that we do with in multi-entity political organizations. And that comes directly from your experience working in one. Yes. It was very hard for me to find somebody who knew enough about legal stuff and tax code things and accounting and political compliance and HR and payroll. I'm curious just because of my background, what is your sense of the state of software for political compliance? As far as like FEC filing software? FEC, state filings, IRS filings, you know, there's there's a lot of that. To explain the very basics of it, the FEC has one filing system. Every state has a different filing system. And then there are municipalities. In New York, there are, there are official villages, and then there are cities and counties that all have different reporting requirements, but also reporting systems. And so I think it's, it's hard to make software for that because if you're trying to, to help somebody do the reporting for anything that they have, it's basically impossible because in Los Angeles, you might have to mail in a letter. In Virginia, you have to mail in a letter and also fax something. In Pennsylvania, before the pandemic, you used to have to submit something online or via email, print it out, sign it, get it notarized, mail the same thing in, all within the same amount of time. And so you can't have software that, that solves a, a, no, a notary problem to that degree. And so I think that software is really hard. We work with a lot of organizations that have PACs that aren't set up as their own operating entity. The C3 runs payroll, 
the C4 does all the public facing stuff and the PAC gets used six weeks out of every two years in order to, to have reporting software for that pack, there has to be like a cost benefit analysis of, does it make, Oh, we're only using the pack for six weeks. Like, should we pay a lot of money to have a really good reporting tool, which is usually NGP in this case. And a lot of, for a lot of packs, it's not worth it. it. Like the price of entry for the softwares is too high. And so there are other softwares that cater to that tier of, of pack of organization. We haven't found one that has checked every box. And I, I actually did have a conversation with some people at, at higher ground labs last year about like, what would it take to build a, a software that, that does check more boxes for smaller organizations. And it was very illuminating and it turns out that it takes a lot of money to build software and time, which I did not know. Does that mean you were pitching that to them as something you could do? One thing that I have found helpful is that now that I, before when I worked in organizations, you're just like one user, right, of, of a software. Like an accounting firm, Pocketbook is kind of an aggregator of a lot of nonprofits. And so we we bring 20 accounts to a payroll provider and we use it so much that we have insight into like what's good and what's bad. And I think that there should be compliance firms that are building or helping to build or update or give feedback to compliance software. And so, yeah, I thought about, I was like, what would it take? Do I have the time to do this? Do I have the expertise? Definitely not to, to build a software, but I think that there are, if anybody's trying to build compliance software, I'm happy to give them feedback. I can tell you just from my own experience of a couple decades ago, NGP built their compliance software with scores of compliance firms giving feedback. Yeah. 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 And, NG and NGP is good. NGP solves a lot, solves for a lot of the issues that we have with, with compliance. I just think that there are organizations that just, just can't afford it. The compliance piece specifically. And, and so for them, the option is that it's free software from the FEC or something. Free Tech software file. from the government. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. I, I had to have, when we were first doing Sunrise pack filings, the software just failed on me one time. And it's stressful. Yeah. It's stressful because it, it, it's like you're interacting with the government in a very like real time way that I, you're, I think your regular like taxpayer, let's say, is not used to you file taxes once a year. Like that's it. And filing FEC reports is more frequent. Is it hard to have a client base where some of the clients feel that they can't afford a $500 a month piece of software? I mean, how are they affording you? No, I don't think it's hard on principle because I think that again, back to the strategy before structure thing, I would feel like I was infringing upon somebody's ability to execute their strategy if, if I had a requirement that you have to have. But I mean, you're a professional firm. You must charge over $100 an hour is my guess. Yeah. Yes. If somebody's going to take you an extra five hours a month, that th they're paying you 
potentially for your services, what could be saved by successful technology. Correct. We move people onto software when they reach a point where it makes sense. Like I, I would never, yeah, I mean, your point is, is very well taken. I, I wouldn't, if it's easier and cheaper to do it on software, we, we do it. An interesting thing about charging for your time in, in the way that I do is that a lot of people come to pocketbook when they want to start something. They have an idea. I think I heard it on one of your episodes about like the, like a social social entrepreneurs, like people who start nonprofits. So a lot of people come to us with an idea of, oh, I want to do this political thing. It's usually political or campaign issue-based thing. What type of organization do I need to do that? We go through a discernment process with them and connect them with the lawyer to help, you know, we'll, we'll prep the content and, and can then just give it to the lawyer and they hit file to the IRS. But when you start, when you help start an organization, you can't charge a retainer because the organization isn't at its full, it hasn't bloomed yet. It hasn't gotten to the point where it's, it's executing at the level that they want to. And so I try not to ever charge people for the expertise that they think they will need in six months because they're not, they're not, they haven't raised half a million. They haven't raised a million dollars yet. Do you charge for your work hourly or do you some, do some kind of retainer thing? We do both. Generally for, for setup, we'll do hourly or a project fee. And then the tiers are based on the volume scale and complexity piece that I said to you before, which is usually, are you under half a million dollars of annual revenue? Are you between half a million and a million up and so forth? And once you're above 2 million, it's kind of specific to, to what it looks like. And do you have payroll or do you have healthcare? Are we managing that for you? How many credit cards do you have, et cetera? And then how many organizations do you have? And so we, once you're at that level of operating like a healthy organization is, you're on a retainer. I think you mentioned to me that you listened to the episode that I did recently with Mike Marotti. Yes. And his firm, which does IT for progressive entities, is very analogous to what you're doing, right? It, it's, a, it's a service provider to the same space adjacent, I would say. Yes. He talked about having decided on a retainer relationship as a good fit and not getting him into what he'd seen elsewhere in the IT industry, break fix, hourly fees. And I've myself observed with different kinds of service businesses that a strategy for getting yourself out of an hourly relationship where the client feels then that every time they have an interaction with you, there's a, a timer running and, you know, just how we feel with our lawyers, like $500 an hour, stop talking to me about, about my janitor. Like, how are you thinking about pricing? When I was working at Sunrise, I think one of the things that held me personally back from creating systems that could do the scaling that we have alluded to and is is known at this point was that I didn't have a good understanding of what the benefit of outsourcing is. In the first year, year and a half before the Pelosi Green New Deal sit-in happened, 
we weren't operating from a place of like, yeah, we can outsource and we can bring in consultants. And, you, you know, we, it was like, okay, we have to do this. Like we don't have the money to do that. The money needs to go to training people to be in the movement. It doesn't need to go to <laughs> consultants. And, and I think that that was for me, particularly in retrospect, difficult because I didn't know how to ask for help from professionals, like people who, who were experts. And so what we try and do is create a situation and create retainer models that allow for that to happen where people can come to us to outsource any part of the financial or accounting or operations kind of workflow. And whether that's just reactive accounting and bookkeeping, whether that's bill pay, whether that is running payroll every month for you, or whether that is being your entire operations department and you being a multi-million dollar organization. The lowest retainer that I do now is like probably 1500 bucks is like the lowest retainer that we do monthly. But, but for 1500 bucks, depending on the size of your organization, you don't have to think about anything. Um, and we just do it all. There are a lot of organizations that, or there are a lot of states that have audit requirements based on how much revenue you bring in as a nonprofit. We help execute audits with auditing firms as like a rolled up part of the accounting services, I think at a, a very affordable rate. Some businesses use kind of an outsourced model for HR and things like that. It's a common thing in the commercial world. They often charge a percentage of your payroll or something like that. I've myself been uncomfortable with that model, but it's kind of your model to some extent. What's different about what you do? I actually do not like the percentage-based retainer model. That was a model that, that was used at the compliance firm that I worked before for certain types of organizations. And so I, ha I have a good amount of experience with it, actually. And I think that it accounts for volume when you're talking about packs or campaigns. So if you're taking, let's say, 2% of revenue, right? That's your fee. When you're raising money online, that makes sense because you can only raise so much from every individual. There is a certain amount of individual transaction volume that then translates to how much work you're doing. With nonprofits, it just doesn't work like that because you have foundations giving out six, seven-figure checks once or twice a year. And if you're really good at fundraising, you have maybe... 10 funders, they all give you six figure check. That's all you got to do for the whole year. That's not an appropriate thing for me. It would be too costly for them to manage six transactions at a 2% rate. It just wouldn't yeah, make sense. It's just not fair because the work doesn't translate to that degree. If I was to say I had to do a percentage fee structure for nonprofits, it would be more fair to do it on the expense side, I think. So what's an ideal client for you? What do you do for them or what would you like to do for them? Ideal client for us is somebody who wants to work with us because they understand that we have the experience necessary to help them build a complicated, scalable political organization. As Pocketbook has grown, something that I've realized through advice and reflection is that not only do we have like a niche of organizations that we work with, the multi-entity 
you know, left-leaning political organizations. We also like come with a system that we think is best for organizations of that nature. And so I think that an ideal client wants to use the system. And are you talking about startups in that space? Because there's like, you know, like a Planned Parenthood is a multi-multi-entity, multi-state, probably highly complicated, very established in their systems. Could you help a established big enterprise? Or are you talking more about smaller startup type things? We have organizations that range just in terms of revenue that range from $50,000 of annual revenue to like $7 million. So you're talking about generally pretty small. And those clients that we work with that are in that range are ones where we actually run the full cycle of accounting and bill pay for them. We have organizations that we work with that are bigger than $7 million of annual revenue, but we do like operations consulting type things for them. We help them with their multi-entity structure, or we execute like one or two parts of the accounting cycle for them or run their pack for them or help them maneuver between all the different systems that they have or the fiscal sponsors that they might have. And I think once you get that big, you're in-housing your accounting, basically. What should I have asked you, Howie, that I didn't? Question would be, what's the goal? What's the direction, I think, for Pocketbook generally in the space? Where are you trying to take Pocketbook over time? What's your long-term goal? I want Pocketbook to continue to provide expertise, analysis to political organizations that are trying to build progressive political power. I think we do that well now. I want to continue to to provide those services, accounting services, operations, help organizations start and, and grow. I have recently started doing like helping people like me two years ago who are, you know, have been in-house somewhere and are moving to start their business or be a consultant. I think the pocketbook is in a, in a unique space to be able to, to help like also build like the, the vendor side space and whether that's like by networking people or by just doing the accounting, which we don't do that much of, but could in the future. I think the biggest thing that I want to do is to actually build out the non-accounting parts of Pocketbook, which is doing like research aggregating of kind of like what is what is the state of operations in the progressive political world? What is the state of accounting talent? Like how can we basically solve for the things that were part of the reason why I, I started this, which was to skill up the space and to make it so that these skills and the expertise isn't something that is currently as special or unique as it is. In order for the left to win, we need money. And if you want to have a lot of money, you need somebody who knows how to take care of it. And we see all the time organizations that crumble or get taken down by bad financial practices or bad habits or bad forms being filed. And I want to help to build up training programs and to build up certification programs and other things like that. And I think that's the, that's kind of the next, next venture. You mentioned something about 
other operations firms have kind of also sprung up at the same time. What are you seeing in that regard? Specifically progressive political uh, campaign and organization space. So there's, there's one organization called New Left Accelerator that we work with that I am like a coach, lead coach consultant for them. And they do a lot of technical assistance work for multi-entity political organizations. They help to we coach executive directors, coach operations directors, help to skill up staff, help is to- that, Is that Deborah Barron's? Yeah. Thing? Yeah, I talked to her back in 2019 yeah. about it. I, don't, I haven't tracked her since then, yeah. I feel like I do, that's some of the most rewarding work that I do is with them. There's a group called the Ops Collective, which are two people who used to work at Arabella who help spin out organizations, like help people leave fiscal sponsorship, which I think is, there's a couple organizations that I see, or vendors and consultants that I see do that specifically. And I think that's a really really valuable space to be in. I think that a lot of people need need help with that because fiscal sponsorship is, I get a bad view of it because people just talk to me about it when they're unhappy with it. Because <laughs> um, if they're happy, they're not, <laughs> they're not talking to me. And then there's a lot of fundraising firms that are out there. Fellow traveler, her name is Kirsty, and she just started a thing called the Fundraiser School, which she has like a fundraising firm that she works on that, that like she does and then she also basically built out kind of a training program for fundraisers in the pro- specifically for the progressive political like left multi-entity fundraisers which i think is really cool and that, i'm very inspired by that to be honest i'm always amazed by how much is going on that i don't know about at all and so good to hear this from you appreciated the opportunity to catch up with you today anything else you want to say thank you for the opportunity the fact that you do this podcast is is very special and important, and I, I love to listen to the people that you interview. I would say if anybody wants to build compliance software, I would be interested to talk to you. And if anybody needs help with some of the operations and accounting work, running a multi-entity organization, you can find me at pocketbookstrategies.com. All right. Good to talk to you. That was Howie Stanger. He's at pocketbookstrategies.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.